economics and medicine, climate change and our future, everything depends on energy. We use it to drive us, we use it to heal us. This is The Coefficient Life, and we sit down with the smartest scientists, futurists and thinkers on the planet to discuss the big ideas around energy in all its forms and ask the questions you wish you could ask them. I'm your host, Anthony Salomon. And I'm your other host, Kim Brooks. Anthony and I are here to bring you stories that are shaping the future of our planet. Now let's dive on into a universe of energy. From the Podcast Bureau, this is The Coefficient Life. I drive an electric vehicle. I recycle. I use energy companies that provide a good portion of their power through renewable sources. Am I really making a difference? If, like me, that is something you think about daily, then join us for today's conversation with Richard Simmons. Richard is a senior research engineer and fellow at the Strategic Energy Institute. He has also advised the U.S. Department of State on international policy issues related to renewable energy. He has authored numerous publications, including the 2014 book, Understanding the Global Energy Crisis, and is one of today's top minds in the fields of energy technologies, transportation energy technology, and future energy policy and strategy. So let's jump right into a conversation with Rich about energy policy and innovation, what the future of energy looks like in the USA and across the globe, and start to get to the bottom of the big climate change question that we all have and get a better understanding of the real impact we're having and how we are helping to save the future. So you know why we're here, I guess? Somewhat. Yeah, you can tell yeah. me tell from any Steve told, yep, a little bit. Steve told you, okay. Anything I can you know, do to help address some of your questions around EVs or emissions or? Yeah, all of that stuff. I mean, I'd love to dive deeper into that that article, that paper that you sent out the other day right. that was sort of showing, hey, if you live in Colorado, you're no better off driving, really, you're no better off driving an EV than a regular combustion That's right. engine. Right. And then sort of diving more into that, because my assumption from it was because of altitude and temperature, you're less efficient. But I don't know if that's correct. So part of it, is, so I would say it breaks down most of the dependence on locality comes down to what the grid mix has. What's, what, how they make their base. Yeah, I would say yeah. 80, my research shows. Oh, so it's not the actual battery efficiency of the vehicle. It, it's part it? of it. Is it less efficient at altitude? It's at temperature. At temperature. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh. Altitude is relatively minor. It affects combustion very slightly. The reason Denver was higher on the emissions is Denver at that time of the data is five years old maybe now. Yeah. Has a very coal-heavy mix. Yeah. Okay. And the ambient temperature will affect the range and so forth. Batteries. So the air conditioning and the heating. So the way I kind of frame it in broad sense, I worked at the State Department, so I had to kind of explain scientific things to policymakers. And I think about 70% or so of the locality dependence is what the electric grid has to offer the mix in that region. Yeah. About 20% is the outside temperature fluctuation. And about 10% is other minor factors like mm-hmm. the hills and the mm-hmm. rain and the other types of environmental factors. And, the way, worse and we, we sort of tried to control for the way people drive because, of course, that's a big factor, but you can't let that enter into. That's going to be different even with existing technologies. So even if, even if the Colorado hypothetically all 100% nuclear or something non-carbon producing, there would still be... Right, because it's cold and you need heat, and that's actually a real problem for EVs. So internal combustion engines 
have sort of freeways heat along with they, they come along for the well, ride. Well, exactly, heat comes along for the ride. Yeah, with the combustion. And then, uh, then when experience. you want to heat the cabin, you're just sort of Take scavenging some of that. Yeah, and that's what goes through the heater core that heats you up. So yes, I would say if you want to think about it in those sort of three buckets, grid mix is the predominant one. Very few people are talking about like uh, how much significance that can have. Yeah. And then ambient temperature. So if you look at Minnesota or Toronto, EV range could be half in a cold winter day as on an ambient wow. spring day. That's a big difference. And also in the summer, you know, cities like Atlanta, you'll have a very significant air conditioning load. That's another parasitic energy loss that will affect EV efficiency and range. Yeah, yeah. So you think about these cities that are sort of optimal for EV. Seattle is a good example. Yeah, I think so. Very temperate, very clean mix, hydro, lots of wind offshore, lots of good exchange with uh, Canadian cleaner power. You know, the weather is just sort of temperate. So if you look at that that's whisker plot, Seattle is one of those that's near the lowest right now. Yeah. And then you'll see California and New York are actually pretty good because you have a fair bit of renewables in California coming from mostly solar and wind. And then you have some nuclear. And in, in New York, the big story is hydro from Canada. Right. So between those, they, they kind of get a little bit better than the U.S. mean. New York's not quite as good for a couple of reasons. And then you have cities like in the Midwest, which have both seasons, all four seasons. Yeah, so you've yeah. got cold and winter penalty, summer and winter penalties. And then you have a lot more coal, right, in the Midwest. So it really matters. And that's why when I looked at that in my dissertation seven or eight years ago, I said, why is the state of Colorado adding that there's a $7,500 tax credit for buying an EV from the feds? Yeah. Colorado was adding another, like, 5000 to that to incentivize more EV buying. But really, we said it was a wash from a regular vehicle. So the implied cost of carbon was like infinite, right? Like there was no amount of driving of that EV in Colorado that's ever going to help green the planet, right? Yeah. Anyway, the point is it's just very locality dependent. And I think one of the reasons... Policy Colorado added dollars. I think... Because it was a feel-good thing? No. To do it, so or? politics, but also the trajectory of the mix. So that's not a static story. I think they're trying to prepare for the cleaner grid, and that is happening, and you're seeing that in the CO2 trend. Do you think they did that to... Stimulate. Stimulate the, maybe the, the move to green. Right, because it's something that's a chicken or egg. You have to kind of do both together. Like, the issue with Colorado, I think, was let's put some infrastructure out there. They knew there weren't going to be double-digit percentages of EVs. So few cars that are kind of as good or no really worse yeah. would at least bring, yeah, I think that's the reason. But when you think about it from a taxpayer perspective, that's a lot of funding to do arguably relatively limited things in the near term. Yeah, And nice. it's, it's kind of picking a winner too. It's you fun, know yeah. there's other ways to yeah. get there. Yeah, maybe that, and that environment, maybe hydrogen, hydrocarbons are better. Yeah. But I do think in the last five years have been substantial improvements in the grid. And now there's a little more, let's say, symbiosis between EVs and renewables. But now to the paper that I sent, 
we think there's a fair bit of available capacity, at least in the Southeast, so that we could reach maybe an eight or 10% fleet share of EVs. But when you get too much beyond that, then some tough trade-offs come into play. We're going to need to invest in a lot more infrastructure because if, if everyone drove an EV, we'd need basically a second grid because effectively the amount of generation that we use for current demand is about what we'd need to travel yeah. the same yeah, yeah, miles, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, if it's- That's a, what I've heard that before from people, so I'm glad to hear you. Yeah, it's that. about- a, I've it's heard a you exactly another grid all together that who pays yeah. for that. Now, the reason I said there's this sort of low-hanging <laughs> fruit is there's very limited use of some of the generation assets in the early morning hours, right? There's 1 a.m., 6 a.m. Yeah. So we're really trying to encourage people to charge during that time if they can. If it's a residential choice, you could put your vehicle on a smart charger that actually... Well, Tesla now has an option in their app where you can set only charge during off-peak hours. Yep. And then you can set what those times are, yep. which is what I do now. And that's perfect. And presumably that's going to be lower CO2. You will not get the solar because that's not available in midnight, but you will get more wind depending on if there is wind. And you'll get things like natural gas, which are combined cycle could be lower and, and some nuclear. But the point is- Rich, what is the CO2 or what does the power distribution look like in the state of Florida where both Anthony and Ken live? It's a little bit like Georgia. You have a lot of natural gas and there's sort of two flavors of natural gas. You have the combined cycle plants that are 60% efficient they emit about 400 grams per kilowatt hour of CO2. I can send you some of this data. That'd be good. 400 is better than the national average, which is maybe 500. And then there's another type of gas that they turn on in high demand periods, which is called a single cycle combustion turbine to meet peak demands. That's around 700 grams. And coal is around 1,000. And then the renewables are all down below 100, and nuclear is much less than 50. So it depends sort of on the full life cycle, you know, what went into mining the different materials. So just, just for comparison, do you know what an average combustion engine might be? Within yeah, 750 power? is an average gasoline okay. in per unit energy. Okay. So if you're running on and so a natural gas plant that's putting out 500, you're better. You're better. And that's CO2. So the other strong argument for EV is the other pollutants. So yeah, nitric, nitric. in a tailpipe, you have not only CO2, but largely, you know, NOx, uh, yeah. SOx, inverted hydrocarbons, yeah. so particulate matter. Yeah. So the real strong argument is in urban areas, you get this benefit from CO2 reduction, but you also move, you don't eliminate it, but you move all these air quality problems from an urban area in the distributed point to single single point, potentially where the large power plants are, where they can control those maybe more effectively, or maybe where there's fewer people, where it's less of a local yeah. air respiration issue. Yeah, I mean, and also if you're reducing it in the vehicles, you still got to produce more power, which then increases... So you're taking it from, as you said, you're taking it from here and putting it over there. That's right. Now you yeah. are putting less, but you're still, it's not a free exchange. So when you talk about zero emissions, really technically it should be zero tailpipe emissions, but the automakers are torn on this because they actually don't know where you'll drive it. 
when they sell you that vehicle, it is the same vehicle in Seattle as Denver. And they can't really sort of get in the mix of that because, you know, they don't want to discourage anyone from buying one of their products. And that's why the EPA has had a hard time figuring out how to represent the label because they can't really know. It's even an hourly question, right? There's zip code. They don't even know where or when. And so it's this spatial temporal question and that's the type of research we're really looking at to sort of then inform policymakers say, maybe it's not a big deal, but maybe it is, you know. That's nice. So back, back to that point you said earlier, and I think it would be good to get just a general broad overview of for electric production and for transportation currently, what the mix is like, and then how much, I mean, how much total energy is needed. What do we produce in the U.S. integrated power annually? And then what did, what do we use for transportation? Yeah, so are they roughly the same? Twenty eight percent of U.S. energy goes to transportation. Okay, and about what's the total pie of U.S. energy? All of all everything, transportation and and electricity. So the three biggest energy uses are transportation at about twenty eight, electric power. It's close to that, also thirty five. Third, uh, yeah. And then the the balance is industrial uses. Right. Transportation. So electric power is just broken out separate from industrial use of that power. Uh, yeah, that would be like fossil fuels going through gas to heating oh, and running uh, steel water, water heaters. Oh, okay. yeah, like ma- mass production of. Goods okay. and services. Okay. So yeah, you're right. Some of the electric power gets used by industry. Yes. But when we think about sectors, it's usually kind of the well. They also have. It's it's. I have a good plot of that actually. There's four sectors. There's okay. Residential, industrial, commercial, and transportation. Okay. Okay. Right. That's what. Yeah. Okay. But then there's sense. like sort of these these sort of transition buckets, which are electric power and liquid fuels and yeah. heating, oil and gas, and this kind of thing. But yeah, that's why, that's roughly though, if you look at that pie chart, it's one's 28%, one's 35%. Yeah. That's why you almost have to double the grid if you try to electrify that. Correct. Now there's- You, you there, have to take that much power and re- find to, a way to get it out to you. To go the same mile is a little bit more efficient for a electric vehicle. Yes. From the vehicle perspective alone, because you have a motor which is maybe 90% efficient, you have an inverter that's 95% efficient, the battery round trip efficiency is something like 88 with lithium ion. So you're up in the 70s or so to go that mile of the energy in versus energy out. The efficiency. Same mile with an internal combustion engine, it's like 30% because so much is lost to heat. The rule of thumb that I learned in 95 was. A third goes out the tailpipe. A third is is used as uh, heating the coolant and the friction of the body, and a third is useful work. Right. So if you and it's gotten a little better. That's like a nuclear power plant. Third. But but here's the catch. So that seventy percent on a vehicle basis didn't include the energy that was put into the battery. Right. That was off the books. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Oh, it's just just the, the battery was already full when. Hundred percent yeah. free energy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if if you're using a solar pe- panel to do the whole thing, it's a fair assumption. No one does that, right? Yeah, that's, that's, they're actually that's using like, coal or natural yeah, gas, yeah. and then the it's, and then, it's the, then the then the efficiency per mile is not. It's all over the map, yeah. and that's what that plot was meant to show you. Is yeah. you had the gasoline variation was very limited. Yeah. Yeah. And then the EV, it's all the city and the weather and all these other factors. Right. And the same thing's true for energy efficiency as emissions. You get the same whisker plot. 
So Rich, can you talk about your workshop that, that you had a couple of years ago about the efficiency, yeah. about uh, examining EVs in the context of what works and what? What we were trying to say is just, there is this sort of regional need to look at the, the grid, but also how people drive, like there's horrible commute times, or there used to be in yeah. Atlanta, still is. Uh, bad air quality, <laughs> et cetera. What city in Florida are you guys? Orlando. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes you have the same, lots of visitors, right? And never kind of know. What, what our workshop tried to do was say, you know, the, the technology works. The EV is a great solution. I've been working on it for 20 years, but it isn't going to work the same everywhere. So let's bring the people into the conversation that need to make these decisions about longer-term planning, uh, not only for the generation side of electricity, but also we're going to have to charge these vehicles. We can't have uh, a good example that I share is if my neighbor and I and the two other neighbors that are on the same sub, you know, uh, transformer all buy an EV and no one else on the street has one, the power company actually has a problem because there's a, a rate-limiting constraint that's very local, super local, as local as it gets to me. And now they have a decision, like, are they going to tell me I can have midnight to two and sort of broker that with my neighbors? Or are they going to come in and say, this is growth, we're going to put another transformer in because we have this extra need, right? So this gets really local, and that's why uh, policymakers need to know with a, a couple different, you know, sets of radii, what the right framing and boundary of the problem is. That was like we ran an experiment yesterday on the drive up here. We, we did indeed. I didn't know whether or not the way the you got the transformer down here and then you've got all the charging bays like this. Yeah. And I just assumed that if you were parked in spot number one, you were gonna get your charge at like three hundred miles per hour. That was the sort of the peak rate you were gonna get. And down here we were getting, I think it was like 220 or something and it was because when we arrived i was the only car and we were getting about 300 and all of a sudden it dropped off when two more cars came and i was like well let's just jump in front of them this is tesla's own one. charging station right right this is a tesla's own charging i wonder if i move back to that first yeah, we'll i'll we, bet you know it won't it's make it intelligent yeah it, 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 it levels up to everybody you can be anywhere yeah they even say so that's that, that was the that was the that's a very good because it's like if we jump back there are we going to go back up to the higher rate or is it, you know... It's making a system decision like, without your knowledge. Yes, that's yeah. what I told him. That's, that's what it's going to do. Yeah. And that's what it did. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how it has to manage the supply? And they, they, yeah. they thought of it. Tesla's thought of it. Well, that's yeah. what was impressive to me. I said, if it, doesn't, now, if it doesn't, then that's I can't believe this Tesla did that. Now, I will tell you that sometimes, and we've seen this, like there will be multiple... <laughs> My question was back to what you were saying, right. is if you and your three neighbors buy electric vehicles but nobody else on the street does well then how do they do that with you do they just say okay we're we're gonna take everybody's charging rate down it would or, or, if we were all on at the same time yeah ideally what we're working on is algorithms that are functioning through the smart meter that would talk to each other and it would say all right well we we think you guys are all plugged in and are okay with us using the next eight hours and we can then use that as we think is most optimal. Yeah. Whereas Tesla can't do that because they know that you're plugged in, you're expecting. Yeah. Uh, so, well, the interesting thing then is yeah. as AI develops, like with my Tesla, for instance, I get in and on the screen, it brings up my calendar and it knows exactly where I'm going and when if I put those events in yeah. the calendar. 
So then could it charge based on that going, well, I know that you're going to the gym at 6am, it's in the calendar, but your next door neighbor doesn't leave for work usually until 7.30. So we can actually not start charging their car till much later in the cycle. It absolutely can. And it should. And there's just this issue of personal data privacy. Yeah. As long as you as a consumer are aware of how they may use your data and yeah. others. It's really easy. Just yeah. put up a really long thing that nobody's going to read. Everybody that's right. Free and we're done. <laughs> and that is, I think that's where we're going. And I think, you know, then the question is, uh, how do they have to interface with the utilities? Because they're just still kind of a mediary of, it's not their power. They're- no, exactly. They've got to integrate now with the smart meter. And, oh, now you get electric car manufacturers only wanting to deal with certain power right. providers. Well, I, th- I think the cable companies dealt with this with bandwidth issues, right? Yes. And with bandwidth sharing. They'll turn you down just because they need and something. I think, yes. Exactly right. And I think it's going to be a similar issue. Mm-hmm. If, if you start trying to take... Oh, yeah, internet providers used to shake... From 2% of the cars car. to 10% of the cars, that issue is all over in everyone's face all day long. Right. Now, and so now, will storage of power do that to us? Turn you down? I mean, turn dial, down... Dial you back? On the rates of your, so I'm not sure if they need to now. At peak times, they might, and they do that with companies, yeah. or they'll send a signal with pricing. They'll say, we're not going to turn you down, but you will pay more yeah. during these high peak periods. In fact, they, I think, are obligated to tell you when and how long it'll. So when I lived in Texas, I know that they did that with the power companies wanted control of your air conditioning. Yes. They have it if we have that in Florida. I think in Georgia, command response. Yeah, do cast for that. Like in Georgia, I don't think Georgia Power has control of my no uh, thermostat, but in Texas, they did. And they would, again, on peak days, they would dial back your AC in your house, and you might be like, it's a little hotter than I expect today. You look, and sure enough, it is hotter. And power company dial back here. Right? Yeah. yeah. And they incur certain liabilities, right? Because they have to maintain a certain level of service and comfort or else they have legal you could get injured if it got out of whack you know but no and, and the smart it never got bad so the smart degrees that you see that you were there, off there's two smart homes in southern company one's in alabama and that one has like all these brand new homes fully instrumented with iot and and i remember talking to some people that lived there they said you know it won't let me run the dryer every time of the day i want there will be a time where it'll just say that's off, off the table. And there's some things about the climate control that it would take over. And so, but that was a an agreement they signed when they bought those homes. Like, yeah, I'm willing to agree to these things. Wow. Well, they Duke Energy said about four or five years ago now bought out Florida Power and Light. Yes. And so they they bought the nuclears, the Turkey Point nuclear, all that stuff up through Central. And I used to, for when I first came there, I played, paid Florida Power and Light Power, and I've been in 10 years to Orlando. And so they kept sending me this notice with this free bribery gift of, of uh, low power oh, light bulb yeah. saying, with this gift to remind you, please sign this form to let us install a, a they, they marketed it with a nice name, but essentially a device that they can control to ratchet my power down. Interesting. And, but the, the whole asked, house? The whole house. The, the, whole, the whole house. The whole house would get it. And they can decide in tough times to change my power. And and it was, but they didn't have the eminent domain to force me to do that. It was by agreement. It was by agreement. And of course, that went into the trash and I used the bulbs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I put in a uh, energy monitor system last summer, and I, do, I did it because I'm leading this STEM camp. I wanted the kids to see. You can see by hour, by minute, um, yeah. what's going on and off. And my energy load on those hot days in July, 80% of my energy demand was from the air conditioning. AC, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, in Florida, it's probably... And if, if that overlaps with my interest to plug in my EV, you can see how if you get to double-digit shares of EV drivers... Oh, and yeah. don't manage that. That's well, what, yeah. I, I, my, I would hate to put one of these on my house because I'm telling you now, 150% of my power usage comes from my AC. And then the rest of it comes from my car. Yeah. <laughs> Just those two things alone are probably Those using do you have all a, of mine and my neighbor's energy concern. Is it Duke? Do you have a special EV rate? So there's super off peak rates here. Uh, you can get like a penny a kilowatt hour. And, and that's the other way they leverage to incent you to do it off-peak, even if you don't have the smart device. You're like, no, we haven't been offered that yet. Okay. Yeah. But then the, the downside is that they'll ratchet it up to like 20 cents in the late late afternoon. Oh, yeah, of course. They There's nothing free. It's got to... Yeah, they got to do a balance of it. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. But, but see, I, I didn't know that you could uh, set the settings for EVs to charge them in off-peak uh, hours. So I would just do it intentionally where I'm like, well, I know I don't have to charge my car for two or three days, yeah. and and then I would just use it. And when I did need to charge it, I would make sure at like ten or eleven o'clock at night, I would plug it in before I went to bed. Yeah. And then just because of that, I might get one hour or two hours of on peak rate, and then the rest would be right off peak. Now, rate. does the Tesla app allow you to set that now? Yeah, it has a button in now. Yeah. I, I I hit it before. What, uh, what I'm working trip. on is more. I guess, collaboration with the utilities so that we yeah. know what their marginal efficiency and emissions rate is to inform the smart apps in the Tesla device and the other vehicles so that you could not only say, right now it's sort of a hourly window, which we think may be favorable, but if we had yeah. real backup to say, hey, you know, Saturday in the mid-morning is actually the most efficient, least environmental impact because we'll have the whatever nuclear plant has excess or something, it would be great to inform that would be great, yeah. people's behavior that way. Yeah. But then what do you foresee as a problem if you start going, well, Saturday mornings are the, you know, the optimal time to charge because there's excess energy coming out of the local plant and now everybody's only yeah. doing things on Saturday mornings. Yeah, yeah. That's the issue. <laughs> you know, what, what do you do now, then? How do you get, how do you spread that out? That's so, like a 2030 question. As in the year or 20, 30 yeah, minutes? Yeah, the year. <laughs> so to your point, you know, I think there's going to be... That's 10 years away. Uh, in yeah. best. There's a sort of chicken and egg, and I think there we can go. learn with a lot of low downside for the next five years. Yeah. Question is, you know, who pays? And the question is who pays. So will that be equitable? Once, yeah, and once that starts happening and you, you, you feel like you got Big Brother telling you this stuff and your rates are going up, you're going to get mass concerns. Yeah pushback i guess yeah but there are ways to do it there are ways to do it though and there are ways to demonstrate the financial benefits of these air quality improvements people could probably put a number on the performance benefits although i think right now it's of course i mean you have a lot of torque on demand I, 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 you have torque and on probably demand. more than is like needed or that one would pay for but you know if it was a premium yeah yeah what they'll eventually do is tesla's a example of i get i get a lot of torque so one says oh, i'm gonna get that from an ev but then what they're gonna turn around and do is then ratchet down that that ev to where it's what you really need and then it's like this little puddle jumping thing that barely moves yeah you see power 
And the other trend you'll see is most people... <laughs> well, you have a button. You can adjust the torque. Like I know that, but I'm saying you'll go to where the government, the government does, it, does it through car manufacturers, and that's what you can afford, yeah. and then pricing, and that's what you'll be able to afford. Yeah. Most of the thinking when I entered automotive in the 90s was let's give one product that does everything, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I don't think the EV automakers are making that mistake. But I also know most people have two, most families have two vehicles, so they could take a gamble and say, I don't need 400 miles range from this EV if I've got something else. Most no, definitely not. That's what we have. We have a combustion engine car and and an EV. And I think people will do that. But to really bend the efficiency, the emissions curve, you not only need the EVs, you need them making the miles too, right? To make them pay off. So if my summer trip is 5,000 miles and that's all from gasoline, it doesn't do much. You got to still work on that too. But I mean, this is where companies like Rivian, who are claiming 450, 500 yeah. miles plus digital jerry cans, yeah. so you can do six or 700 miles before you actually need to recharge. Yeah. They, I think they're going to change the game, right? That's right. And other people like, like we talk all about personal commute, but the movement of goods is on par with the movement of people. It's, yes, it or more. So, and we're seeing so much more mail order, everything, and uh, Amazon's commitment. Trucks. So, so, so then Tesla's doing these electric shipping trucks. Mm-hmm. And how would you say they compare, you know, because you've still got to charge them, and they're much bigger batteries. They have an advantage over personal use in that they return to a central base on a regular schedule, presumably, and that they can have more insight into what's happening on the grid Oh, I was going to compare them to just a regular Mack truck. Oh, so like over-the-road Class 8? Yeah, like yeah. Like the, the big rigs? Yeah. So because Tesla's building a big rig. Oh, the, the super, no, not the super truck. Not the cyber truck, which is their SUV. Right. But they're, they're building an actual, like, you know, 18-wheeler truck. Yeah, 18-wheeler. So the 18-wheeler needs, if it can carry 40,000 pounds of cargo, it needs 10,000 pounds of battery. So one-third of their available cargo... The energy for that is just for the energy source, like the energy. Yes. Wow. So that, to me, is not sort of the perfect first gambit. I know that that's another chicken. You still need a liquid hydrocarbon timer. It's so dense. It's so good at what it does. Yeah. And also those particulate emissions are not a big deal because they're distributed over rural America, and that's not going to hurt. It's not in the air, but one concentrated area. It's basically on the highways. Diesels are most efficient at that sort of... 70 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. And those are so expensive right now. So, you know, there's a play for them, but I think what you're going to see in the next decade is a lot of medium duty, a lot of the UPS package yes, trucks. Yes, trucks, yeah. And the, the short haul, like Atlanta, Chattanooga, Orlando, Miami, oh, that kind of stuff. 20 footers. Yeah, for 200 miles. Yeah, yeah. Where they can either, you know, stop in between or swap, swap out. Swap out on each end. That's where, to me, the, the really best play for an EV value proposition is. And then, you know, the other point of the Class 8 is, do you know how long it would take to recharge 10,000 pounds of batteries? Even at a... I got a super battery. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it'd be overnight, at least. Yeah, and they at least afford that, because their well. money is in the labor and the time, like the time to delivery. And Yeah. You know, we've talked really nice, really explained very well what this problem looks like for the U.S. If I'm overriding concern is CO2 emission for the globe. We do all these things by 2030. Oh, I keep a combustion car and I'll, I'll go ahead and get a little play with a little EV. 
And I, I, what kind of an impact will I make compared to, and I do all we can practically do, which is not all we, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's missing the mark, right? To get to zero emissions. Then you have countries that don't do anything about it at all, have the kind of energy use that we have, or if you collect several of them, several of them and they will have. And so the impact of the environment, it's not going to, you're not going to change. So it could go either way. I would say there's two sides to that. One is we have relatively less dense cities and more spread out cities. So in countries like in Asia or Europe, you have urban centers that are much more population dense and rely much more on a public infrastructure. If they made the commitment to clean buses, EV buses, or clean rail and you know electric options, they could actually go faster than we can, right? And also those central governments, say China does this at the top, they could force it to move very quickly. No, I, I believe the, the civilized, or, or what do you call it, the first world could. I'm worried about the second. No, okay. They could probably leapfrog, but you're right. I mean, that's- I mean, a, a country like India, right? That's a question. Or China. What will happen there is if, fossil fuels are available, it will continue to remain the yes, cheap option. Yeah, and it will just be used. We quit using it. There may be a lot of it yes, to be used. That's right. All you're doing is just expensively paying for all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, the argument's yeah. going to be... Argument's gonna be the interesting comment I heard from people in India was they were talking with Al Gore, and Al Gore was saying, you need to cut emissions. And he goes, no, you need to cut emissions. America had its time to pollute the planet. It's our time. That's right. Yes. We need to become a first world country. But to do that, we need to burn fossil fuels. So I think at some point, that's just what you're going to get into. Because it's what I'm hearing is none of this stuff's going to change to make us zero emission free anyway. No. Not, not practically speaking. That's right. But also this mentality of you guys polluted the planet for the last 50 years or 100 years. Oh, so let, let us oh, have our time so we can that. become an economic and, uh, superpower yeah. like you. And, and all of South America can make that argument. All yeah. of Africa can make that argument. Yes. And India and most of China can make that argument. Right. Well, that just leaves Europe and America. Yes, you're right. And, and China's <laughs> 25% of the global emissions, right? Right. And India's 15. 15 or something, yes. There's, your, there's 50%. Africa is a challenge because I think they really do have reason to make that statement. Like we can make huge strides in quality of life improvements with Carbon. relatively minimal additional investments and, you know, but it's probably going to be conventional energy yeah. that helps them get there. Yeah. You know? Well, South America has that. I mean, Brazil, I mean, it's better than Africa, but it isn't like Europe. But the other side is if there's no established grid, like we have a problem of inertia in the U.S., yeah. you know, this has always been the case. The grid is $5 trillion of assets. If you're in a country with limited grid, you really can rethink it with almost a blank yeah. slate. And if you know it's EVs, you can be a lot more intelligent about yeah. making those investments. Yeah. So there's that too, I mean. Yeah, but if we, and if we go to this path of electrifying all transportation, then we need another $5 trillion grid. I just heard earlier, right? We need the one five. We That's right. We need another five. That's right, and I'm working on a paper on that too. like. Because I think, and I've heard that before, and I just remember I've heard that argument and then, before. And then the hydrocarbon sectors—that's about eight trillion. That's all the current engines and refineries and pipelines, and everything else on that side. And and, and, and I, folks are saying, if we go to all EVs, is everyone just going to write that off? Yeah, all of no, these, they're all trying to make power for oil, oil and the, you, know. you know drills that are offshore, and no, well, and everyone's engine and the backup generators, and just by 
Right. You know, that's what I mean by how practical do you think this is really going to be? So I think it's going to be, but, but policy, politicians always do that. They're like, we want this end goal. It's the panacea. And they can't say there's a compromise because it undermines their platform. Their, their ability to get or in it, office. It ticks off their base or whatever. Yeah. The reality is it's in the middle, right? They can set the biggest aspirational goal. But even when you ban the engine, if you ban it, there's... Well, they've done that in Europe now. Multi-decade. In the next sort of something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, UK and yeah. a couple others, Netherlands, I think. Yeah, so in the next, you know, decade to two decades, they will not be selling any more uh, combustion engine vehicles. They keep saying that. Now we'll see if that happens. See if it happens, yeah. Yeah, I, I just am a pragmatist. I feel like, yeah. and like you say, if that's a efficient way to get very, very modest living people up to a medium standard of living, that's not wrong, right? That may... Ethically, you could debate that, right? <laughs> Maybe it is more on the shoulders of the more developed countries to say, it's let's like, let them have their flexibility and we'll take well, more of the I don't disagree. Actually, I don't agree, disagree with that at all. I just think that's something that should be open an open discussion in a, in a democracy. Mm-hmm. And people should have it. So, oh, for sure. The problem is, is this. Don't have it open. As you're hearing here, it's so complex. <laughs> I don't know if you can communicate this properly to the general public. Well, I think that's a fair point as well. But I'll tell you what, students... High school students, college students, they get it when you explain it. I mean, they may come through whatever upbringing and have whatever preconceptions they have. But once they see things like the plot I sent you, they're like, oh, yeah, there isn't a black and white one, two, step three, you know, kind of process. It's behavior. It's it's science and data. It's inertia. You know, it's public funds, private funds. Innovation has to be the driver, right? We have to say, what we have to quit doing is picking that winner and saying, this is the path to the future. We have to say, the objective of the future is this rate of CO2 reduction, this rate of jobs. And there are lots of ways we can get there. And and let the science and the business and the innovators and the entrepreneurs and the students figure that out. And that's what's worked well. I still feel like there's a play for, I don't know if Tim got into this, but we're also looking at like renewable hydrocarbons where you capture carbon and electrolyze water and basically make something like a gasoline, but from a renewable source. Yeah, just redoing it all. And then remember that $8 trillion of, we can use a lot of that. Almost all of that and all your other. And still argue those are electric vehicles because they're coming from clean energy. That's right. Yeah. Some of that. So that's how. That's I, a beautiful point. That's a, yeah. That's it's a, it's a many decade. And like Steve's saying, it's a nuance that if you put it on a headline, people won't understand. No, they won't get past the. But if you have a few minutes to sort of set it up and say, you know, these are the nothing's easy. And yeah, well, hopefully with what we're doing here, that's part of what we hope. That's the goal of, of what we're doing. Great. <laughs> Just to try and get the, this exact information across to people in a way well, that hopefully you, they'll digest it and. Even if they just change one one thought or uh, one habit, you know, then you, we've, we've done something right. I applaud you for that. And I feel like more engineers need folks like you and vice versa, because, I mean, I was we had our policy approach in the State Department and I did not always agree with what we had to go to battle with. But we did do our best to explain the trade offs. And yeah. sometimes when it comes down, I remember the Keystone Pipeline, you remember? 
I do, oh, yeah. I do remember that. So I sat in the office next to the guy who had to decide on the State Department permits and deliver it to the secretary. There was a stack of environmental impact assessments on both sides of that issue. Oh, sure. And after two or three years of public comment and research and meetings in the field, and they went to Congress and, and then the State Department came back and said, we need more data. I was like, you're not going to learn anything new. You've been studying this for four years. You're stalling, you know? No more data is going to... At the end, those elected officials have a yes or a no. Yes, this is in the national interest. No, it isn't. Yeah. All of that science has to fall... Into a, into a binary decision. Isn't that tough? Very uh, tough. Very, very tough. But, yeah, it's fascinating. Man. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. And I mean, oh. I, I know I've shared with you the the project that we're trying to develop now, which is uh, I had this idea of doing something that I don't think anyone's ever done before in the in the way of sort of telling these stories and showing the public things that can be done. And I shared my my pitch with Ken, and essentially I want to create it's a documentary series. It starts out as a documentary series. It's got three seasons, each six episodes, and it, it's water, energy, and food. And it shows, okay, we start with water. This is what we're doing with water. This is the problems we have with agriculture and all of these other things and how water is, a, is an issue that we need to deal with. And then it goes into energy and deals with energy and the future of energy and all this kind of stuff. And then the lastly, how water and energy play into the food we eat and how we grow it and Excellent. how we do this and how we do that and the uses of the water and the, and the energy that we use to, to sustain our planet. So that's, that's kind of looking at it from that perspective of how they all connect. I don't think it's ever been done. But then to take that and use that as a catalyst to start driving some changes, not on a, a global scale or on a like countrywide scale, but on a very local community scale by saying, you know what, one of the things I've always had in my head is to take a lot of these urban centres, and I've seen them as we've been walking around here, is you see all these older buildings that, have, that are like set to be demolished, not because they've got asbestos or anything, just because they're just worn down or they want to knock down an older apartment building to put in a new high-rise. I would argue let's take those and turn those into vertical farms that service the local area that are powered with renewable, that are aquaponic farm, so that it's a nice closed-loop system. And that way we're taking away a lot of the transport needs for all of the food. Yeah. When people go to the market, you know, they don't – I mean, you ask any kid, where does broccoli come from? It comes from the supermarket. Well, no, it doesn't. Right, right. It comes from a farm. And we can sort of take out all of that that transport that goes into bringing, you know, I I watched a documentary in Australia about apples and it fascinated me not because they were apples, but because they they would harvest all these apples from all around the country and then send them off to somewhere and then they would flash freeze them, they would do all these things to them and then put them into the bags that you get at the supermarket so in that bag is an apple from New South Wales and one from Tasmania and one from here and from all over the place. And then they would ship them out to all the different, like, but some of those apples came from over here. That's crazy. Why are they coming all the way? Like, well, why would you send an apple from, you know, Orlando to LA yep. to then send it back to Orlando? It's happening with batteries and, and EVs because you have these rare earth materials that are mined elsewhere in the world, but all the processing is in China. And then it goes back out. It really is crazy. Supply chain. Thing. My dad would say it's like pointing to your ear this way. It's like, <laughs> really, there are ways 
to do it more locally, but the way the supply chain and the business models are working today, and the price to do this it. massive economy of scale. And I think Kemi is working a lot on process intensification to do what you said, which is let's instead of building one one gigawatt plant for coal or whatever, let's build. In fact, Tico, uh, Tampa Electric's looking at small modular reactors yeah. in Florida to meet their carbon goals. And building, let's say, 100 megawatt, 200 megawatt small modular reactors and do five of them or 10 of them. Yeah. You know, and the same thing holds for your food model, right? It's Yeah, I mean, I, I think it should be, we should look at it for everything, for energy, for food. Producing, consuming. Water is so expensive to move, you know? But yeah. I, see, I see the same arguments for the electrification of third world nations of saying, huge transmission lines like we have in the United States don't make sense. And so uh, if, as you're looking to further electrify, say, India, it makes more sense to have 100 megawatt plants in certain yeah. locations than 3,000 megawatt plants or multiple or multiple thousand yeah. megawatt electric plants in one region than having to build these and huge, huge, huge Transmission and that's the benefit we have to your point about leapfrogging, because now we know there are distributed sources of energy like solar, and you can plan the grid accordingly. Whereas we have this legacy system that we kind of still have yeah. to pay for. And yes, and it makes very little sense just to abandon it. No, that's right. Or just makes sense to abandon this chemical. Well, that's that's taxpayers' assets. It's integrated. It's already our integrated wealth yeah. already put into that. <laughs> So it shows you that your solution in the United States may be different than what one message different than what exactly. And I think that the approaches at the commission level are still a little bit archaic. They need to catch up with the fact that hey, technology is actually moving a lot faster than policy and regulation, and you yes. need to kind of fix that because we need to be regulating the grid of 2030 now and 2040 now. Rather than continue to, because that'll just keep setting in these other. Yeah, I mean, older yeah, and a lot of the stuff that they're doing now is obviously stuff that they thought of twenty years ago, <laughs> <laughs> when half the stuff we're, we've just been talking about didn't even exist. Yeah, and for those eighty years, the grid really was pretty static. It really didn't have uh, new entrant, competitive no. sources of energy. No, and the model was add kind of scale per plant to make the plants big. That's right. Or a site with four plants in it, right, yeah. or eight plants in it, right. That was always the story. Some economy scale the grid, right? went all the way up to 3,000 megawatts. That would somehow get you more bang for your buck. Right. But we now learn that that may not necessarily be. Right. Well, well, fantastic. Thank you so yeah, much you for, for taking the um, time to, great to chat with us today. Great project. And yeah. let me know how I can help you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to be uh, podcasting and doing lots of stuff. So awesome. I'm definitely going to be hitting you up to, to jump on that and Look forward talk to, to us about some amazing things. Yeah, look forward to it. If you need more resources, just holler. Tell me what you need. I will. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find the Coefficient Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a topic you want to hear more about, follow us on social media and message us through Facebook. Remember, energy is everywhere. Use yours wisely.